Hello and welcome to the program. This is another podcast for The Diplomat and with me is David Totten. David is a financial analyst with uh, Emerging Markets Consulting, EMC, based mainly out of Cambodia, but he does do a lot of work around the region. David, welcome to the program. Hi Luke, nice to be here. Uh, look, we're a year down in terms of the pandemic and a year ago there were the world was divided between those who thought it would be a short-term thing and those who saw the realities. The rollout of the vaccines do seem to be making a difference, but I don't think anybody thinks that will spell the silver bullet for the end of the COVID pandemic. Where do you see things unfolding over Southeast Asia over the next six months? Oh, over the next six months? It's or longer out. It's up to you. Yeah. I would say the next six months, it's like kind of difficult to forecast where things go in the short term mainly because so much is linked to the availability of a vaccine. Uh, it's not manufactured in, in ASEAN, so uh, a lot of countries here are depending on being able to go and get stocks in from other countries. Uh, where we currently are in Cambodia, we're getting them in from China and from India, which make the AstraZeneca vaccine under license. And it's uh, there's, <laughs> there's long queues for AstraZeneca and... Uh... The government has noted the queues for the Chinese Sinopharm are somewhat shorter and that's that's causing disruptions in getting the vaccinations out to where they need to go. You're, you're basically saying that really everything's on hold until the vaccinations are rolled out, until everybody gets an inoculation? or um, I wouldn't say it's on hold, but basically I mean, everybody's going to be making long-term plans. In ASEAN, that's going to be around developing the manufacturing base, uh, accelerating the digital revolution growing economies generally, right. further integration, becoming a uh, attractive destination for FDI. So long-term plans really don't change that much. I think everybody expects that we will get over corona, but exactly when that happens, that is subject to um, a great deal of uncertainty. Um, going back to what we were discussing before, mm-hmm. there's also the issue of vaccine um what's the right term, fails me, vaccine policy um, or, right. or vaccine di- diplomacy, rather. Sure. So yeah. you've got, got China, I think ASEAN is the recipient, the largest external recipient. Of, certainly one of the first, yeah. Yeah, of a, Chinese a million vaccines. coming. America notably isn't providing vaccines overseas at the moment, but right. with the progress they're making under the Biden administration's current plans, we would expect that they will plan to start doing so yeah once down the line i noticed that uh, the quads meeting between the united states india japan and australia uh, they just announced that uh, a lot more money i think tens and hundreds of million dollars is going to be earmarked for countries like cambodia to ensure vaccine supplies we're obviously kind of stalemated i know for instance expats around the region uh, struggling to know what to do, where to go, how to get their vaccine vaccination. So, uh, assuming we get through this, I mean, some of the interesting economic angles to emerge out of the pandemic is uh, digital currencies, which you mentioned before. Uh, what's happening in Cambodia in terms of de-dollarisation, the introduction of the Kong uh, as a central bank digital currency for transferring money. These sorts of things. Are they going? How are they going to help you know, improve trade relations, even between within countries within ASEAN, facilitating business, facilitating trade? 
Well, digital currency in ASEAN is going to be a key component for facilitating cross-border e-commerce. Right. Um, so that will be a great help. Um, going back to your comments regarding Cambodia, Cambodia is really leading on the uh, central bank digital currency front. It should be noticed the um, noted that the NBC themselves on record are saying it's not a currency. It's not something that you or I can go and trade or deal in. It mm. is better looked at as advanced digital infrastructure that will facilitate interbank payments and eventually extending financial right. inclusion to the whole country. This has been a big aspect with the um, Cambodian economy where I think they refer to it as the unbanked, but it's also people who rarely use a bank and the percentage of uh, the 16 million people in Cambodia, that's about 70%. It's quite a high number. Yeah, indeed it is. Yeah. If you can't um, buy, if you can't pay for things online, right. then you can't join the digital economy. If you can't do- join the digital economy, then you're missing out, basically, and potentially the countries um, that have a large number of their consumers or, um, or citizens are not participating in it is going to be left behind in terms of their own economic development. What's the potential for the economic? Is there a numbers game on how many people or how much money could be bought into the banking system? I mean, there was one figure I saw that uh, in 2019, $60 billion was transferred around the country through different payment options. That's a lot of money for a country like Cambodia. And given that 70% of the population rarely uses a bank, there's obvious, uh, I can see why economists and bureaucrats are hoping this will give the economy a lift, particularly in the pandemic era. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Cambodia actually has reasonable progress in money transfers. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of the guys listening to the program will be familiar with MPSA who isn't, that was uh, rolled out in Africa, originally developed by Vodafone and considered to be one of the first or first major digital payment systems. In Cambodia, we have a similar company, Wing. Mm -hmm. We've been well established now for about 10 years, I would like to say. But that really doesn't represent digital finance in the sense we talk about it now. Right. Um, a lot of guys will use that service as a straightforward substitute for like traditional ways of like sending money from A to B to a relative at the other end of the country mm. or whatever. I'm not tending to use it a lot for more sophisticated services, accessing e-commerce right. uh, and so forth. That's so cool. Cambodia has a strong basis to go and move forward, but what they need to do is on board that those existing customers to more sophisticated services right um, and when they can do that then it becomes the driver of e-commerce one more question on that and just quick note that Lao is uh following the uh cambodian lead on uh central bank backing of uh instruments like bakong it seems to me that uh these are being favored by the least developing economies within asian where the more advanced economies, say Singapore, for example, they've got an entrenched banking system, it's first world. Is it more of a case that digital currencies like Bukong, I'll take that back, uh, digital infrastructure like Bukong, which facilitates payments and is backed by the central bank, does it make sense that these are being favoured by the more least developed countries? Yeah, I think you you, um, hit the nail on the head there, Luke. 
it's more difficult for advanced countries with established, pretty well-functioning infrastructure. Right. Um, it's more complex to go and move to a completely different system. And insofar as the existing system is kind of working up, you know, it's working okay, the mm. marginal gains are not necessarily there. So it's more expensive and less beneficial. But you take a, um, a country like Cambodia, and there's other examples around the world, the infrastructure isn't there, so the marginal gains are substantially higher. Right. Um, and they don't have an existing system to the same extent that they need to migrate. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a great opportunity for them to leapfrog. And leapfrogging is a concept we talk about a lot, these things, but in many cases... Skipping the curve is yeah, it's, it's, the, it's, it's that very difficult to achieve in many cases. But in this case, it looks like Cambodia and other countries are doing a good job of doing exactly that. Okay. Uh, uh, China, the ever-present force in Southeast Asia that was uh, growing exponentially, particularly before the pandemic, is uh, obviously going to be shaping the region policy and economics going into the post-COVID era, perhaps. How has relationships changed with China? There's been, as you mentioned earlier, the vaccine diplomacy. We know relations are strained around the region, including in Cambodia, which had once been described as you know, China's best ally in the region. How do you how do you see it going forward? Well. ASEAN depends on China for a lot, right? I mean, mm. China is the largest source of uh, FDI. It's the largest source of trade, not the only source. China, US, Europe jointly count for over 50% of uh, external trade with ASEAN. But China is number one amongst those three. So, yeah, there's corona vaccine diplomacy going on, but ASEAN is uh, somewhat... I wouldn't want to say entirely dependent, but obviously China is a hugely valuable partner for them. They're going to continue to rely on And like Chinese incentive is extremely obvious. If you look at the ASEAN region in general, by 2050, it's expected to be fourth largest trading bloc in the world. And with China being number one, India being, I can't remember, number two or number three, mm -hmm. uh, the world's moving towards... Um, in 30 years from now, the world will be Asia-centric and China want to go and be the number one player in the number one geographic region. Right, and rising uh, discontent with China, particularly among local countries, is that creating another in for, say, Western powers into the region? Particularly, uh, you know, Barack Obama was criticised for doing too little too late. Donald Trump was criticised for ignoring the region. Joe Biden does seem to be taking a more active involvement in Southeast Asia, and that was in, that was highlighted with the Quad meeting, which took place last week, again, with India, Japan and Australia, as opposed to talking to China first. What sort of opportunities are there, given there seems to be this sort of lull in Chinese expansion into the region? Um, if that's right, that's, that might be the wrong word, but... Uh, yeah, um, I mean, looking at the long-term long-term future of Asia and ASEAN within it, like a small lull here or there of like one year or so is, right. <laughs> is uh, you know, it's a bit of a speed bump, right? Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things. ASEAN obviously is not populated by what the US or the Europeans or the Brits, now, long, uh, now that um, we're no longer in Europe, would consider vibrant democracies. Right. And in that context, sometimes it's difficult to assess genuinely 
how impactful public sentiment is. Mm-hmm. Like the man on the street in like uh, Philippines or in Vietnam right. or in Singapore right. in terms of doing uh, doing stuff. Set that aside. I mean, I'm sure it's important, right? It's just difficult to uh, assess or is not possible to assess in the same way we might well, do so if we're in the UK true. or Europe or whatever. That's true. Oh, well, opinion, pa- <laughs> sorry. Uh, opinion polls are banned in, the re- in many countries in the region, and <laughs> right. certainly in Cambodia. So that, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that's a factor on that one. But we are seeing that the, the rise to authoritarianism over the last three, four years, looking at what's happening in Myanmar since the coup, February 1. There's a lot of Chinese infrastructure there. The Russians have wanted an in with Myanmar, they see access to ports and trade routes as well. So you've seen the sort of short and medium term, perhaps there's uh, nothing that can't be resolved. Yeah, I mean, certainly like the governments in the region, they all have their own security mm. concerns. There probably is a general sentiment that China, when it is entering like trade deals, is perhaps not such a generous partner. Right. in terms of the deal they're looking for. And will it honor um, the contract? Yeah, people looked at like, the RCEP agreement, which sort of was a bit of a new splash um, a short time ago, but it doesn't go as deep mm. as other trade agreements. America has tended to be pretty generous when it comes to opening up their market, right. which is obviously the real carrot yeah. uh, for Asian economies. And I think there's probably a general... A, general slightly distrustful sentiment amongst ASEAN governments that China doesn't like to do that (laughs) right Um, and so you know getting away from the whole issue about public sentiment which I think is important but is not perhaps important in the same way as it is in US Europe Britain Australia and so forth you know governments have their so uh, their own self-interest and the interest of their populations and their economic development and China is hugely important Mm -hmm. because it will be the largest economy uh, relatively soon some say it's the largest economy already and so you can't ignore it right and uh, neither should they I mean so but will there be at the back of their minds caveat emptor uh, you know a sort of a concern about what they do. Do they want to have another viable partner to go and stand up with whom they can also do trade agreements, also rely on for investment, like EU or America? Absolutely. Okay. Going back to the issue you raised briefly on um, Myanmar. Yeah. Yeah, it's... um, ASEAN really isn't like the EU, uh, and obviously they are extremely reticent for members of, uh, of ASEAN to go and comment publicly on the affairs of any of the individual states if you look at you know you look at Myanmar um, currently before the I'm going to make a huge mistake and say the International uh, Court of Justice yeah ICJ thank you for that (laughs) I was going to say ICC for a bit I mean that case was brought by the Gambia right Right. it wasn't brought by one of the Muslim states in ASEAN so you know for a long-term ASEAN watcher like yourself you're really looking at much more fine much more finely graduated nuances in terms of how member states react to the situation in Mm -hmm. Myanmar then for example you would expect if something was happening in Central Europe or Eastern Europe you know you'd see stronger statements coming out of for example the EU or America right and uh, ASEAN member states generally are quite reticent to do that right um when Europe has found itself in trouble the 
issues with the Balkans, the issues with Northern Ireland to a much lesser extent, they've been able to engage in outside help and they've actually you know, put boots on ground. One would argue they have been shy in using uh, military force, but that does not seem to be an option for Myanmar, whether it's ASEAN, whether it's the United Nations, and certainly whether it's the West. Yeah, I, I can't see military force being on the table. I mean, it's just wouldn't come from ASEAN. Would it come from the US? I think like Joe Biden might well personally want to do a trade deal with ASEAN, but probably you know, has a whole load of other public policy priorities back in the US, right? right. He what needs, needs to sort out the economic impacts of COVID, which he has just done, and he wants to go on for infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think he's pretty nervous about putting TPP on the table in the US, right? Yeah. So if he's nervous about that, he's going to be pretty nervous about defending global democracy in Myanmar. Right. EU obviously won't do anything. They struggle on, you know, generally on these big ge- geopolitical issues. Mm-hmm. They still struggle for example to come up with a kind of common view on russia's gas pipelines to germany for example so you know you can't see them doing much obviously china appears to be very interested in myanmar for geopolitical reasons and couldn't really see anybody uh yeah do you see under that circumstance. do you think russia could be uh, uh reasserting itself in the region do you seeing any signs of that i mean the Russians were here in big numbers, probably two or three times over the last mm. 20 years. They bailed around 2014 when the ruble collapsed. Do you think that uh, there's scope given... Uh, I think what I'm getting at is the pandemic is creating a vacuum politically, economically, mm. different bubbles around the region. And if there's a vacuum, it creates scope for others to come in and fill the void. And Russia, it's too smart to ignore this part of the world. And yeah. it's, uh... I mean, Russia's like, I mean, got a long, long, long history, like going back to whatever, the 19th century of, you know, this, some of this overseas adventurism, right? right? You go back in a long history, none of it ever particularly came off. But, you know, they would have been nosing around in Africa to see whether they could get a bit of the European grand game down there. And I think the, I used to live in Russia for about uh, for four years during the 90s, and it has changed a great deal. You know, Russia is not an economically powerful nation. Mm-hmm. It is militarily powerful because they've got lots of nukes right. exclusively. And that is I, one area where they've been making yeah. inroads, particularly military sales, hardware to Vietnam, well, yeah, true, true. some to Laos, and uh, certainly to Myanmar, where the generals kind of see Russia as a, um, an alternative to China. Yeah, um, actually, yeah, I mean, it's a ghastly thought, right? But obviously... Um, you, I was about to say you can't really build strong perpetual diplomatic relations on selling armaments, ar- armaments to uh, to a country. But obviously, if the country is large enough and it descends into a pe- perpetual state of war, then yeah, certainly your your ability or your desire to provide weaponry to one side or the other becomes a very significant um, we, tool. We saw that in Syria. Yeah, we've seen it in uh, Afghanistan and certainly uh, the old Soviet republics. As we emerge out of the pandemic, and given what I was saying in regards to uh, vacuums and voids, what industries do you see going ahead, thriving even, in the kind of post-pandemic era? And what type of uh, government policies are needed 
to encourage those areas of growth? Well, I would say my general view is that COVID is obviously hugely impactful event in the short term. In the long term, it doesn't fundamentally alter those key drivers in the, in the ASEAN economy. It has, it's large already with a very large working aid population uh, and a very, uh, very young uh, demographic. It's growing fast. As we said earlier on, it's likely to, it's expected to be the world's fourth largest country or trading bloc. About half a billion people. Yeah, by 2050, absolutely. And uh, as a result of those factors I just went to mention. So that probably isn't going to change. Um, Assuming, as you all do at the moment, that the vaccines create a durable or manageable situation around coronavirus Mm -hmm. and we're not at the end, uh, not at the beginning of some new apoplectic world order where um, viruses ravage the global community every, you know, <laughs> five years or so. Right. So the key drivers for ASEAN as they get richer and richer will be to continue expansion of uh, manufacturing. So already, uh, it's already extremely important driver of the economy, but manufacturing itself is going through an evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth industrial revolution, as some people like to call it. So. Uh, for ASEAN, they need to go and shift their comparative advantage from abundant, relatively cheap labour to much more sophisticated IT-driven manufacturing. Right, so that's pushing into the advanced economies. Yeah, absolutely. And as they will develop, services become increasingly important. They're already very important. Mm. I think it counts for about, on average, 50% of um, ASEAN GDP. Uh, so that will ex- uh, expand greatly. Um, in the short term, tourism has obviously been hugely impacted. So that I was going to ask you about that. Next, yeah, so yeah. They, they need to, they'll have to come up with policies to recover. It's obviously relatively unequal across the whole of ASEAN. It's uh, Thailand and Cambodia have hugely impacted by COVID. Right. Where Indonesia has been yeah. isolated to places like Bali, but not necessarily the entire economy. Myanmar, yeah. the coup has overtaken events there. I mean, the Philippines has basically shut down, but tourism had sort of lagged there for quite a few years after Rodrigo Duterte initiated his uh, war on drugs. Uh, Laos remains uh, Laos. <laughs> I can see the smile on your face. It, it, things don't change despite the rhetoric. Malaysia, uh, it, there seems to be some political stability there with the new government and Singapore is forever in the corner, basically pushing its standards and being a major behind the scenes operator. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, worth bearing in mind that going into um, COVID, a few of the main tourism destinations are already having some challenges, right? Mm-hmm. In Cambodia, in Thailand, the uh, the tourist market been shifting quite dramatically, right. a lot more Chinese tourists coming in. Mm-hmm. And they have a very, very different spending pattern to European tourists or American tourists or from right. other countries, potentially spending less money in the country. Or um, uh, we saw the rise of this uh, zero cost tourism, yep. which was troubling quite a lot of people. And I think actually Thailand got into trouble with China over that. Well, they tried to ban it um, yeah. in Bali as well. Exactly. So so there were troubles going, in, going into it. And it's interesting to wonder as it reemerges, 
how much we fundamentally changed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of it may be. Well, within the economies and the different sectors, I mean, it takes a long time to skill people up for certain, for say tourism or for manufacturing. Uh, people are leaving one sector and trying to find work in another. Okay, it's limited, but it's going to be difficult to get that back. Do we need it back anyway? Tell me a little bit more about the fourth industrial revolution. It's quite intriguing in many ways in terms of will that necessarily lead to stronger exports or are we going to be looking at stronger manufacturing at homes, where, whether it's making cars or garment manufacturing or household appliances? That is a difficult question. There seems to be so many um, opinions floating around the fourth industrial revolution. I guess the majority of the opinion is behind the idea that this is going to be a major uh, change, hence the term revolution. Uh, There's still a few voices around who still not quite clear on impact. I think a number of things are probably fairly clear. Less employment in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Those people who are fortunate to be employed in it will need substantially higher skills. They move from being essentially work that is manual orientated towards work which is intellect orientated, for want of a better word. That it will be a significant shift in a part of the world where you have a very young demographic and those people will need jobs right. as and, they get older. And they're increasingly becoming more yeah. educated with university degrees and they want a certain type of job. Yeah. So you need a lot of jobs whilst traditional manufacturing, shrinking the traditional manufacturing base is like reducing the number of jobs. So, yeah, I mean, ASEAN probably wants to become manufacturing hub for the world as an exporting that product, mm-hmm. as China perhaps declines a bit in that area due to its rising right. cost base. We used to call it the uh, world's factory floor. Does that no longer apply? I guess it depends a bit where you are in, in China, and I think depending on how you measure it, if you include all the cost factors, there are certainly places in China that would still qualify as low cost. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the cost of infrastructure, the benefits of being in a cluster, right. um, the reduced logistics cost that come as a result of that, tighter integrated supply chains, right? Mm-hmm. You, if you factor all that in, there's still parts of China which are substantially low cost. Right but other parts which are substantially high cost. Okay. There are other countries that will either economic opportunity, uh, Vietnam being an obvious one, right? Mm-hmm. They have obviously nowhere near as big as China, but they have a large workforce, like most of the countries in ASEAN, a very young demographic. They've just negotiated this great trade deal with Europe, giving access to, to markets. Mm-hmm. And so one would expect uh, them to be substantial beneficiaries. So your longer-term prognosis, uh, perhaps uh, perhaps we should wait and see how the, va- how the virus behaves once the vaccine has been rolled out in six months' time. But uh, your longer-term prognosis seems to be uh, a lot more optimistic than uh, quite a few other people that I've spoken with. Uh, yeah, I would say it is. But the optimism or pessimism is kind of, you know, is based on certain assumptions about the world, right? Mm-hmm. People over the last few years, even before coronavirus kicked off, have looked around a world that seems to be fragmenting, 
Um, right. I in mean, a geopolitical sense. Sure, and, globalization was already in retreat before COVID. Yeah. Um, and so if you emerged. look at, you know, if you if you look at that and you see that as an irreversible trend, that's going to undermine a lot of assumptions you might make about the growth in ASEAN, or to be frank, the growth in anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. ASEAN, which you know was, is, you know, is going to be largely export driven, moving to advanced manufacturing. But if they can't export their stuff, then that kind of undermines that economic pathway, right? So, yeah, I am, I tend to be in the glass half full in the sense that I don't see the world geopolitically irrevocably fragmenting i obviously and unfortunately stand to be corrected for wait and see what happens over the next couple of years it would be great of course if the american political situation and linked to that public sentiment there somewhat stabilizes and that will give a lot of countries including ASEAN, a source of stability or a counterweight in the world And on that note, David Totten, uh, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Luke. Cheers, mate.